BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Javier Zamora arrived in San Rafael at 9, stepping off the bus in the shadow of 101. His parents had arrived years earlier from El Salvador and had begun to make a life in the canal the island of immigrants marooned on the shoreline of Marin's Ocean of Wealth. Javier had spent the previous years living with his grandparents and tia in a small town on an estuary near the Pacific coast. The time between leaving that town and arriving in San Rafael, two weeks that turned into two months, has haunted Zamora for more than two decades. His new book, Solito, feels like a way of casting out the demons and casting off the shame. It's a startling portrait of bravery, that's both remarkable and everyday. Javier Zamora joins us in the studio after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The new book, Solito, recounts the two-month-long trip that Javier Zamora took from El Salvador to reunite with his parents in San Rafael. He was nine. Nine. Javier takes a trip alone, though others along the way a mother, Patti, her daughter, Carla, and a friend of theirs, Chino, extend remarkable care to him. He was, in the political language of the day, an unaccompanied minor, a kid trying to reach mom and dad, a kid beginning to notice his body changing, worried about farting in front of Carla, who he crushes on, a kid who wants to be snuggled, who wants to be home, who doesn't remember his father, who left before he could form memories. What is home? Where is his heart? Will he survive? Solito is a book you will not forget, and maybe it will change the way you understand the so-called crisis at the border, which right-wing politicians whip up every time there's an election. It's also just a beautiful piece of writing, art in the way that only some books are. We're joined this morning by its author, Javier Zamora. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us about nine-year-old Javier. Um, So I grew up in this very small rural coastal town in El Salvador called La Herradura in Departamento de la Paz. And I am the only son of the eldest daughter of three. Um, And my grandma is a pupusera who has a pupusa stand in front of a clinic. And my mom was very outgoing. My grandma was very outgoing. So I grew up being very outgoing and very social um, selling horchata, orchan, or pupusas to people. So everybody knows me. These 800 individuals in the town know me. And they know my dad. They know when he left. They know my mom and when she leaves. And she leaves me when I'm five. 
And I think her departure completely changes me from this social little kid to the, I, I get shyer and shyer. Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And who's really kind of you? Your Tia is there for you as kind of like almost a surrogate mother. Mm-hmm. So my mom leaves and she leaves me in the care of my grandma and my aunt, Tia Mali, and my other aunt, Tia Lupe, and her five-year-old. Um, I'm five and then she has a baby. And I grew up with them from the ages of five till nine. And throughout that time, um, I grew up talking to my mom at best once a week over the phone. They also send VHS tapes that they record and I can see them uh, on the television. They send a television, a color TV, uh, VHS uh like uh, a player and a fish tank so all these things that my parents can now afford because they live in the united states and they come and live in san rafael california and so san francisco the golden gate san rafael full house Baywatch, (laughs) all these things become my understanding of where my parents live and the type of lifestyle that they have which of course wasn't the reality when did you know that you were going to be taking this trip to join them? I think since the moment my mom left. Um, when she left, she promised to come back. And in my town, I was not the only kid to have a parent that had fled. Um, I didn't know what they were fleeing. Of course, it was the Salvadoran Civil War. But as a kid, you don't understand that. But it wasn't abnormal for the children in my elementary school to have their grandparents come in for Mother's Day celebrations or Father's Day celebrations. And all of us at recess, we all wished to rejoin them because every birthday, every Christmas, they wouldn't come back. And I think as a little kid, we understood that they were never going to come back. And so every candle, every plate that broke, every shooting star, I would wish to be back, be back or be with them in the United States. Man, I mean, I have a nine year old and I just I can't imagine it. It's unimaginable. I mean, it's unimaginable. It truly is. Mm-hmm. Um, so you write this book from the perspective of you as nine and how did you decide to make that the sort of the the craft decision right to not do it you successful writer looking back but you nine-year-old who has no idea what's happening you know I can answer that in multiple ways um I consciously began writing this book when I was 29 and that was I had gotten this fellowship at the fanciest of institutions at Harvard Um, in order to write my second book of poems. And my second book of poems, my pitch to Harvard was that I was going to look at every mention and every article written around Central American, Central American refugees, Central American unaccompanied children that was written between April 2017 and April 2018. As you remember, that's when a lot of the media, it was like they just found out that there are 
unaccompanied children like we didn't exist before. And in the process of this research, I was like, wow, I am an unaccompanied child. And there are all these other immigrants writing about us as if we can't write about it ourselves. And so I started writing it from um, me, as you just described it, uh, a typical memoir. I am this 29-year-old at Harvard, (laughs) and I'm going to tell you about the worst nine weeks of my life. And it wasn't working. I couldn't write, and I think I couldn't write it because I needed the kid to speak for me. And the kid for me is, which is my nine-year-old self, was somebody that I had been carrying with me since the moment that I crossed that border and somebody that I was ashamed of and that I hadn't sincerely looked in the face. And once I sat him down, I saw him and, you know, and saw him, saw his face, then I could remember and I could speak with his voice. And it was almost this thing that I needed to do in order to heal Mm. um, because he, he had been almost dragging me down this entire time. How much of this were you able to do just from memory, from going back and thinking about each day of the worst nine weeks of your life? And how much did you have to go try to reconstruct, like go out to the Sonoran Desert or do these other things to try and to try and build what is really an incredibly realistic world in this, in this memoir? Well, you know, this book wouldn't exist without my therapist and without my wife, who is a Reiki practitioner. She's a yogi. Um, and she has her own trauma that she showed me what healing looked like because she has been actively trying to heal from what happened to her when she was 16. And this is my wife. And so when I met her, um, she was like an example of what I could be. Mm. And with my therapist, who I meet with every Wednesday, I'm meeting her tomorrow, um, a lot of the work with her has been that I need to trust my memories and that I need to trust my dreams and that I need to trust what I feel in my body. And these are things that as a survivor, and this is a term that I just began to use because as survivors, you never want to use that term. And now I've accepted it. But as a survivor, our bodies, our dreams, our subconscious, it's telling us what we've lived through and what we have to face. And, and so using Reiki, meditation, yoga, hiking, um, therapy, I have gathered these little images, snippets, details um, that once I knew how to tell this story, and by that I mean that I knew the date that I left, April 6, 1999, and I knew the date that the book was going to end, June 11, 1999, when I see my parents again. All the details that I had compiled over the 20 years that I had lived in the United States were easier to tack onto that timeline. Mm-hmm. You had thought of writing poetry as healing, but did you find that that was sufficient to... I mean, clearly not. (laughs) Um, It was. How I like to describe it is that poetry 
gave me, you know, you build a house, you build the wooden frame, right? And that's what poetry gave me. When all the other material, all the details that I just described were right there, but I didn't have the tools to put the sheetrock, the roofing, the carpet into that house. And therapy and Reiki meditation has have become those tools. But the, that wouldn't have happened without that framework. Hmm. And that's what poetry gave me, which I erroneously thought that poetry had made me build that house. But it was only the framework. Hmm. And so here I was preaching this gospel of like, oh, all you need to do is write poetry and you're going to heal. You know, the term, it's, a, it's an active verb, healing. Hmm. You're never healed. And that's also what therapy has given me. We're talking with poet Javier Zamora, poet and writer, about his new memoir, Solito, which recounts his journey traveling from El Salvador to the U.S. as an unaccompanied nine-year-old. Zamora is also the author of the poetry collection Unaccompanied. He's been a Stegner Fellow at Stanford and a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. He's won so many awards, honestly couldn't even read them all to you. And following his immigration, he grew up in San Rafael. We'd love to hear from you. What's your personal connection to Zamora's journey? In what ways does Javier's work, whether that's his poetry, his nonfiction, or this memoir, resonate with you and your experiences? You can give us a call. Numbers 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email's forum at kqed.org. Uh, as we go into the breaks... We're going to be playing some of the music that's been that's mentioned in the book. Yes. Hopefully send Javier back in time. Uh, this is one of nine-year-old Javier's favorite songs, Auto Rojo. Uh, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with poet and writer Javier Zamora about his new memoir, Solito. So why don't you tell us about the group that you're traveling with as you come from your hometown and eventually make it to the U.S.? So I leave El Salvador on April 6, 1999 with my grandpa. So it's nine-year-old me, my grandpa, 
and this coyote, Don Dago, who must be like 50. And he has gathered other people from other parts of El Salvador. And there's this mom by the name of Patricia. She must be like 28. And her 12-year-old daughter, Carla, a 19-year-old um, young man by the name of Chino, or his nickname, and this 25-year-old man by the name of Marcelo, a 32-year-old named Chele, and this other woman, Marta. So there's nine of us. And slowly, my grandpa leaves. So now there's eight. Marta and Don Dago probably fall in love and leave the rest of us, the the six of us. The six. Yeah, the, who I call the six. And they leave us at the Guatemala-Mexico border when we're about to board these boats. Mm. And that's how we cross. So you're going to read a little bit about this, but just tell us first, like, what's one of these boats look like? Like, we're not talking, like, the ferry to, uh, to Marin here. They're... I like to describe them as motorized skiffs. And they're these, there are, are no roofs. They're like a meter wide. And I want to say like 20 feet long. Hmm. And as they're driving in the waves of the Pacific Ocean, you could literally just put your hand out and touch the water and the waves. So it's a scary thing. Like you could, if we hit a big wave, we could all capsize. And the locals in the coastal city of Ocos, Guatemala, they tell us, because we get delayed, we keep getting delayed. And apparently we get delayed because week, the week before we arrived there, three similar boats had capsized. Mm. And those people probably all died, you know. So that's what you're headed into, and you're also going to be on this boat. It's not like for an hour, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the trip's like 15 hours or something. It's like 20, a 20-hour 20 trip. Yeah. Oh, man. And you've got to go to the bathroom there. You've got almost no food, not too much water. Like you, get, you're just... you get one bathroom break, and that's what they told us from the beginning. Um, we used the bathroom right as we boarded the boat, and then sometime like 12 hours after. And there's this scene that I remembered and I have nightmares about of this grown man just being so afraid because he can't swim. Because um, in order to, you know, do number two, you have to go overboard and hold on to the boat. And that's one of the memories that haunted me because I could hear his screams, you know, this grown man. And I'm nine years old to see this adult be so scared um yeah yeah there's also these other kinds of moments that happen on the boat i mean one that i can think of is just that you're you're kind of held <laughs> quite literally by the other people on the boat because you start to get very cold out there and it's just this kind of a sign that people are going to take care of each other even in this really extreme situation right and the other is a thing that you're about to read, which is... Well, why don't you set it up for us? Okay. Um, this is the first instance that this young man, who I know by Chino, and that was his nickname, who really offers himself up by keeping me warm. And this will be a theme. 
this is week three of our journey. It's a nine-week journey. Mm-hmm. So for the next six weeks, he becomes like an older brother mm-hmm. and then a pseudo-dad. Mm-hmm. And this is... And this occurred on April 29th, 1999, off somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. I tried fighting sleep. Eventually, I gave in, but woke up when Chino nudged me. Bicho, bicho, look, he said, louder, his breath smelling of cigarette smoke. Flying fish. Flying fish? Fish out of the water? Flying? Swimming in the air like dragonflies, but bigger. More and more of them. They're running from dolphins, the mean coyote says loud. I can't believe it. Maybe I'm dreaming. I thought they were a myth. I saw them on TV but didn't believe. They glide in the air for meters and meters. They ride the wind like bullets, like skinny balloons. More and more. We're gonna make it, I whisper. It's a good sign, Chino says. Ya la hicimos. People in the boat cheer. I don't know how long I've been asleep. Don't know how close we are to wherever we're going in Mexico. It's a good omen, some men shout. A good omen, people cheer and clap more. Then the fish disappear, like nothing happened. We wait for them to come back. I look over at Carla, her smile bright white in the moonlight. Patricia smiles también, both of their eyes wide, glowing in the dark. We keep looking for the fish, but now the stars are up, the moon more than halfway over us on the other side of the boat. I must have slept a long time. I look and look at the water. Nothing, Chino says. Sleep, bicho. Rest. Mm. It was Javier Zamora reading from his new memoir, Solito. There's so many times uh, in this book where you're on this terrifying journey and then you have these kind of moments of transcendence. Do you, did that help you heal to remember that even along the way there were those times? Absolutely. Um, part of that research at Harvard was seeing that a lot of the coverage around immigrants, immigration, really flattens the humanity of these people because it only captures them in perhaps the worst day of their lives. So as readers, as viewers, that's all we know them by these moments. And as a survivor myself, somebody who not, no two immigration journeys are the same, but somebody who has done one myself, that's not all I remembered. I remember the food that we had. I remember these little moments of joy, even after... You know, we were dragged out of a bus. We, as a group, had to find the joy 
in order to not fall into a deep depression and that would keep us and freeze us from moving further. And that's what's missing from the headlines, from all these coverage. Um, because, you know, the human brain and human bodies are amazing. And the brain always wants to keep us alive. And moments like the flying fish and that joy that that brings are what helped me be here today. Yeah. Also love you having tacos for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you come around to the thinner tortilla yet or are you still <laughs> devoted, <laughs> devoted to the thicker tortillas? So uh, that is a theme, you know, in Central America, we have thick tortillas and the more north you come, the thinner and thinner they get. Um, and now I live in Tucson. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of the flat <laughs> flour tortilla. <laughs> Um, you know, some things you write about in the memoir, you'd also written poems about as well. So we thought maybe we'd have you read one of the poems from your book, uh, Unaccompanied, which was 2017. And then we can talk a little bit about, you know, the interplay between the poems and the memoir. Okay. Um, so right after the boat, we land somewhere in Oaxaca and we change and we get on this bus and then somebody tells on us that we're not Mexican because we're pretending that we're Mexican. And then we get dragged out, and this happens. On a dirt road outside Oaxaca. The Mexican never said how long. How long? Not long. How much? Not much. Never told us we'd hide in bands like matchsticks. In our town, we'd never known Mexicans besides the women and men in soap operas. So in our heads, we played the fence, the San Isidro McDonald's, a quick run, a van. Not long, not long at all. In Oaxaca, a small brown lizard licks horchata from my hand. We're friends. We pick names for each other. Hola, Paula. Hola, Javier, she says. We played the fence, a quick run, the van. How long? Not long. On the dirt, our knees tell truths to the cops, front sights, and barrels. How much? Not much. We'd never known Mexicans besides Chente, Chavela Vargas. We're on the dirt, like dogs showing nipples to offspring. It's not spring, and we're going to where there is spring. We say, it's going to be all right. It's going to be just fine. My hands play with Paula. That was Javier Zamora reading his poem on a dirt road outside Oaxaca, from his poetry collection, Unaccompanied. So, I mean, this really happens as you're basically being shaken down by Mexican officials for money so that you can continue on your journey, right? Like mm -hmm. this this moment with this lizard. No. Yeah. Um, and, you know, talking about building a house, right? This poem then gives me a complete chapter mm -hmm. to build around. 
because I wrote this poem when I was like 22. At that age, this is as much as I allowed myself to remember. And I remembered this lizard. And then this lizard comes out in the prose as well. Because this lizard is how my brain, my nine-year-old brain, disassociated from what was happening around. It was the first time that I had a gun pointed at me, um, huge gun. And so instead of focusing on the terror of that, my brain chose to help me survive, chose to focus instead on this beautiful lizard that has made it into poetry and has made it into prose now. And that lizard kept me sane in that moment. You know, the U.S. has a real way of flattening people's cultural identities and kind of stripping out a lot of the nuance. Like everyone from south of the border becomes Mexican or Mm -hmm. whatever the things. Uh, And you, as you're moving up north, you, as a Salvadoran, can, you know, kind of encounter this intense prejudice by the Guatemalans and then the different kinds of Mexicans as you go north. And eventually also, of course, the white people in, uh, of the United States. Now that you're in the U.S. and you interact across all these different ethnicities, how, how have you come to see that, that prejudice that you encounter and that you still encounter? I mean, it's, it's all around still. It's racism. Yeah. You know? um, Latinos, we're not a race. We're an ethnicity. Um, and the wider you are, the better. And for the most part, the northern part of Mexico is whiter, and that's on purpose. You know, the same thing that the immigration pool from Europe that occurred in Argentina occurred in the northern states. Um, and, and even within Mexico, there's like this pecking order. Um, the richest state usually is Guadalajara. And that's where the wider, the prettier people. There's also the saying of like, ojos tapatios, which is, you know, in Mexico, they're the prettiest people there. Um, and it's racism. And every everybody under there is more indigenous. Um, and we have different terms for that. And even below Mexico, then you have Guatemalans. And they're like, what are those people? You know, then you have like catrachos from Honduras who are usually darker skinned. And then you have Salvadorans. And even within El Salvador, you know, we had one of the worst massacres in in world history in 1932, in which the census the year prior was like 65 self-identified as indigenous. The next year, 2%. There's no way that, you know, the massacre killed all of them, but that it killed the ideology. And that's how racism has worked. That's a very, like, um, literal example, but in a metaphorical way. Um, and you can still see it here. Um, there's a, a lot of anti-Central American anti um, sentiment from Mexicans because they're the dominant you know, immig- immigrant group in, in California, in the West Coast. The same thing happens in, in different states. You know, in, in Florida is Cuban heavy. In, in New York City is Puerto Rican and Dominican heavy. And I like to say that us Central Americans have to assimilate twice. We have to assimilate to the dominant Spanish-speaking culture that's around, 
in the Bay Area is Mexican and Mexican Spanish. And so we also lose our voceo in our tongue. And then we have to assimilate to the American culture. Mm. In this book, I mean, you really focus on the different words that people use from different parts of of Latin America. And was this a way, I mean, did you regain the the voice? Um, And that's, you know, talking about assimilation again. Um, For a while, I pretended not to speak Spanish. In order, I, w- I used to be undocumented in order so people wouldn't ask questions. Mm-hmm. I would tell people that I was born in this country. Mm-hmm. And and part of that assimilation was losing or for trying actively to forget my voceo, which is uh, my caliche, which is Salvadoran slang. Mm-hmm. And we use voz, which is why I like uh, Vilma Palma e- e Vampiros. I think Salvadorans like Argentinian Vansk because they speak with voice. <laughs> um, and so I was very adamant that I needed to include our slang. And also, on the way here, I had to pretend to be Mexican. And so I had to learn terms like popote, like carnal, um, all these different things. So my tongue wouldn't signal. Betray you. Betray, yeah. We're talking with poet Javier Zamora about his new memoir, Solito, which recounts his journey traveling from El Salvador to the U.S. as an unaccompanied nine-year-old. Zamora is also the author of the poetry collection Unaccompanied. He's been a Stegner Fellow at Stanford and a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a personal connection to Zamora's journey, you can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email's forum at kqed.org. Uh, Abel writes in to say, just picked up Solito. It's a nicely woven work you don't want to put down. And some other people have questions about how your parents have received this book, which we will talk about when we come back for the break. Um, we are playing songs that... From the book, mentioned in the book. This is uh, Como Te Recuerdo, um, and it's a song that Patti, who helped out uh, Javier along the way, liked. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are joined by the writer and poet Javier Zamora to talk about his new book, Solito. Excellent, excellent book. And, you know, I actually, 
I was a little worried just having you know, listened to a bunch of podcasts and you know heard thing heard people interview you that people focus just on your life and not like sort of on the craft and art of this book. And I was wondering for you, what were the sort of models of writing that you were bringing to to putting this book together? Well, this book wouldn't exist without Edwidge Danticott, and specifically her first short story collection, Crick Crack. And the very first story in that book is Children of the Sea, which she describes Haitians um, making that journey from uh, all across the Caribbean in order to land in Miami. And that story, it's how I began to write this book and that boat scene. Because I'm like, oh, wow, I'm, I also went on a boat. And it was it was triggering in a healthy way, if that's possible. <laughs> um, and that just gave me that, that entire chapter in my own book just flushed out. And I just love how she humanizes immigrants. And she's like the echelon. And another writer, Justin Torres, says, we the animals. I'm still trying to write a book that's so genre bending, but still reads like a novel. Mm-hmm. And you it's almost like a novel length poem. And different sections also read like prose poems or like short stories. And I just like how from chapter to chapter, everything flows. And I would try to like imitate that and just to cut everything that's unnecessary and just get you the gist and the heart of what he's trying to get across. And Justin Torres is a master at that. So just mm-hmm. those two books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of our listeners wants to know if you have favorite Central American poets. I do. Um, there's this poet, up-and-coming poet, Janelle Pineda, who has a chapbook, and she's working on her full length, and she's amazing. And, you know, I... I I'm like the some of the f- first Salvadorans writing in the United States, but there's a lot now. And we're also beginning to hear queer voices. And Christopher Loma Soto just published a book with Copper Canyon, and the title of the book is Diaries of a Terrorist. Um, great title. Uh, <laughs> and so just those two uh, up and coming. And, and there's we're having like a salvi moment in literature. Raquel um, Gutierrez just published Brown Neon and their short stories, another queer salvi. And we have another book of short stories, The Town of Babylon, Alejandro Varela. And we also had another memoir, um, Roberto Lovato, Unforgetting. Mm -hmm. So there is a (laughs) lot, there are a lot of salvis writing right now. You know, I also wondered, you know, I read... Uh, the entire Lord of the Rings series to my <laughs> to my eight year old and now nine year old, um, and you know there's not that many books where it's the the journey just goes like that for like 200 pages. People are like walking or moving in these kind of very slow ways. Did you look at any of those kind of journey books where people are just kind of kind of walking or moving through space? That's that's interesting. The first book that I ever fell in love with, and I wasn't a fan of English literature or reading in high school. But, 
you know, like every Latin American kid, I love Che Guevara. I was like a Che Guevara <laughs> uh, t-shirt wearing kid. And Motorcycle Diaries. Uh-huh. That book really changed my life. That is the quintessential like road trip um, novel. You know, it's a memoir, but it's a, it reads like a novel as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A couple uh, listener comments. Uh, Ana Lucia writes, I'm Guatemalan, and I've been living in California since I was 18, almost nine years ago. I have definitely lost my boceo or my accent as well, even if I still have the slang because I grew up there. It's only when I speak to my family or friends back home that I speak like a chapina. It's sometimes (laughs) embarrassing to hear from another Guatemalan that I don't sound Guatemalan anymore. Hmm. Um, Do you ever hear that from people? All the time. All the time. Um... And you shouldn't let that affect you. You know, all these, you know, language is such a personal thing as well. And nobody should define how much of what you are, not only nationalities, but anything. And so just, you know, forget them. You talk like you. Yeah, just be you, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, let's get in a call. Uh, Francisco in San Francisco. Hey, welcome. Good morning. Morning. Yeah, uh, very quick. Um, I just wanted to say how much I, I am enjoying this interview. Um, and it really um, gets me a little emotional because Javier's story is very similar to mine. Hmm. Um, I was born and raised in Honduras, and at the age of, I believe, 10 or 11, I, I definitely remember this conversation when my mother was in the kitchen cooking, and I was uh, next to her um, washing the dishes. And, and she said to me, you know, a friend of mine um, is going to home to go to the United States. And at that moment, a couple of thoughts uh, crossed my mind, mostly happiness, because I knew um, that one day I will also come to the United States. Mm-hmm. And then sadness as well, because um, I did not know how long that would take. Um, long story short, uh, my mother left Honduras in 1991, uh, I believe some, sometime in June, and um, I immigrated to the United States um, in 1999. Um, wow. I was able to see my mom in 1997 when I graduated from high school. Um, she went to Honduras, and at that point, um, I was getting ready to go to college, but when I saw my mom, I was just devastated a little bit because... She looked tired and sick, and mm-hmm. I, I told myself, you know, I can't really um, ask my mom to pay for, you know, my college education and, and, and just, you know, go on with life. So at that moment, I told my mom, I said, I'm, I'm going to come to the U.S. Um, illegally. And, and she said, well, Undocumented. you know. Undocumented, <laughs> yeah. Undocumented, I'm sorry, yeah, for the term. And she said, you know, just wait for just wait for the green card. It's about to get approved one day, but I didn't. Um, I, I came undocumented uh, to the um, uh, through Mexico, and Javier's story is very similar mm. to mine, um, pretending to be Mexican um, and, and that type of things. But um, yeah, I, I moved yeah, to San Francisco um, back in uh, 2004. I became a U.S. citizen in 2006, and um, um, I, you know, I have a good job, um, good paying job. I'm a homeowner in San Francisco, so. Um, I just wanted to say thank you. For, hey, man. Um, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story, Francisco. I mean, you know, one of our listeners writes in to say, 
as extraordinary as Javier's journey is, and I think Francisco is showing this, and it is extraordinary, there are so many migrants, including children, who make similar journeys. Mm -hmm. Many don't make it. Many make it, but don't get past the border. This is an American story. Thank you, Francisco, and glad that you made it. Hope you're getting the kind of therapy and help yeah. that, that Javier has, has gone to you know, unpack and, and rebuild those experiences. Um, we got to talk about your parents, though. Um, you know, that what they had to do, what they ended up doing, so, so difficult to be away from their child. And then in order to get back with you, that you have to kind of take this journey on your own. How have they received this book? Um, you know, I, lo I love the call because these, I hope that this book starts the conversations within ourselves. Um, we keep these journeys hidden. And for my family, it has, for my parents, this is a journey that we've only talked about in full length, I think twice. Wow. And the first time it happened when they picked me up in Tucson when I was nine years old. Um, they asked every question, and they would just cry. And then when I started writing poetry, I interviewed them uh, as best as I could. And again, they couldn't, my mom couldn't do it, and my dad also just, just cry. Mm. Because as much as this caused me trauma, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine what it would be like to be a parent of one kid and not know where that kid is for seven weeks. And so that, it's its own trauma on top of the trauma that they went through in their own immigration journeys to make it to this country. And it's just layer upon layer. And because of that, um, you know, my mom, they helped me with the translation in Spanish. The book comes out in Spanish in October 18th. And both of my parents helped. And my mom couldn't make it past the first chapter. And my dad finished, and again, he cried. And... Um, it's just this cathartic thing for the both of them and also something that it's still very difficult for them to face. Mm. Luckily, my mom is in therapy. My dad still doesn't believe in therapy. I hope he does <laughs> eventually uh, get his own therapist, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Let's take uh, another call here. Uh, Sophia in Oakland, welcome. Thanks so much for taking my call. Hola, Javier. Un placer enorme. Hola. Um, I'm so inspired by your um, story. I'm currently writing my own essay um, about my immigration experience. I immigrated from Argentina when I was eight years old to the United States. Mm -hmm. I experienced a lot of the things that you talked about, um, and it's so inspiring to hear um, about your writing process and also um, how you talk about this being one of the worst experiences of our lives, but also finding so much joy in the world. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much, Sophia. Keep writing. Yeah, good luck with the <laughs> memoir. Uh, good luck with the memoir. Um, I, you know, when we talk about the people who are in this book, we they're kind of this makeshift family that comes together just for just for this journey. And I just wanted to know, you know, when when you wrote this book, you were hoping that maybe it would reconnect you hmm. with Patti or Carla or, or Chino. Do we, do we know what's happened to them? Have you heard from them? So, you know, I wouldn't be here without them. The book is dedicated to them. And my wish is not that they read the book because they know what's in the book, but mm -hmm. just 
to go to a bookstore and mm. look at the dedication page and know that there's a book out there dedicated to them. Um, we did exchange numbers. This is back in 1999. Those numbers worked for a few weeks. So we stayed in touch for, I want to say, two months. And then the numbers changed. Mm. And they never called. And I don't... I've my de- my mom at one point thought that Chilo Chino had died, and yeah, I wrote a poem mm-hmm. in which I I hint at that, and then and this is how much we talk about this, which is not that many times. So then years later, I asked my dad. And my dad's like, "No, like we just lost the number. Like he's not he's not dead." Um, so I don't know. So it's a huge I don't know, and I hope that they reach out, but also they are. All immigrants, you know, they, they, I hope that now people care as much as they care about Patricia, Carla, and Chino as they do, you know, the immigrants that are next to to you um, all around us every single day. Mm. What do you think keeps the family from trying to talk about it? Is it just, you think it's trauma, you think it's shame, you think it's just kind of needing to be pointed into the future and not into the past? Yeah, yeah, that exactly what you just said. It's it's such a like a Latino thing. You know, why go back in the past? Let's just you know, I I was a terrible. You know, my grandpa's like this. My my grandpa gave us hell, but it's like oh, I don't remember. You know, I don't I don't remember. I didn't do that. Let's just you know, let's focus on keep on going forward, and and that is certainly what what my parents did for a while. Although once I started writing poetry, I wrote this harshest poems towards my parents mm-hmm. but they would show up and to every reading you know they've always been the best supporters and I think they have a lot of guilt and a lot of shame that they put me through this they did not want this and I want to repeat that they did not or did not imagine this would happen to me Yeah, no parent does but they loved me and they tried different ways to get me here, but those did not work. And they just wanted to, me to be with them, which I did too, because I love my parents. Of course. And I think all of those things is are what uh, the reasons why we don't. It's hard for for us to talk about it. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How can you talk about an impossible situation? Yeah. It's an impossible situation. I I do get that. I mean, you on the other hand have. have have gone back into it. And in particular, you've actually been able to go back to El Salvador and you've been able to go back to the scenes. What was it like going back to where you're from after all this time? Um, The first time that I went back, you know, ironically, because of my poetry, I qualified for this weird visa called Extraordinary Abilities Visa or the Einstein visa, (laughs) Um, which I got for my poetry, which is, uh, I still can't believe it. And But the first time, part of this visa, because I came here without papers, that I had to self-deport. And that's what they called it, too. I had to self-deport to El Salvador to interview at the U.S. Embassy, which in hindsight was like three questions long, and it happened in less than five minutes. (laughs) But if I did not um, pass that interview, I would have had to stay in El Salvador for up to 10 years. And so you can imagine I was just like sweating every single day. I go back in the height of um, the gang murder rate. I have tattoos. I was afraid. 
Um, but nothing happened. And so again, like my time back there was finding out that the headlines are telling not all the truth, but it, it's still true. You know, it's a very dangerous country. It still is um, more dangerous than here. But there are other joyful parts as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. A uh, couple uh, last listener comments here. One writes, I just read Most Beautiful Country by Quan Julie Wong, and yeah. the similarities are striking between her and Javier. Both wrote memoirs from the eyes of their younger selves, both that tried to bury the memories, both sought healing from massive trauma. I wonder if Javier is familiar with her book. I'm a fan, yeah. and also a Jenna pick. Oh, nice. yeah, I think last, last year. Uh, and Robin wants to know, would Solito be appropriate for a tween or teen? I'm considering reading it with my son. What is the age that you think would be appropriate? I I think teenagers are, yeah. can read this. Yeah. I, I think so, too. No, not elementary. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my kid was asking about it. My nine-year-old was like, it's about a nine-year-old, but it's not for yeah. a nine-year-old, um, I would say. I think 13, 14 plus. Yeah. yeah. Um. We're going to go out to a song by Los Bukis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have been talking with poet Javier Zamora about his new memoir, Solito, which recounts his journey traveling from El Salvador to the U.S. as an unaccompanied nine-year-old. The book came out earlier this month. Zamora is also the author of the excellent poetry collection, Unaccompanied, and it makes a great kind of dual read with Solito. Mm-hmm. It's been a Stegner Fellow at Stanford, Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard, winner of a bunch of awards, and grew up in San Rafael, California. Uh, Thank you so much. This was amazing, and I love the music. (laughs) It's so good. Uh, This Hour of Form is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Jennifer Ng. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willett, Chris Hoff, and Christopher Beal. Our interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis, senior producer, vice president of news, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.